So this is January 2014, and here at Elevate Church, we decided we were going to launch the year teaching on a subject we call the New Rules of resolution. So many people make New Year's resolutions, setting up for the next year, in this case 2014, with some goals, some dreams, some objectives, looking for some breakthrough. And often, uh, in my observation, some people don't get to see those wins, don't get to see those objectives fulfilled, those goals achieved, not uh, necessarily through lack of trying, but often it's the approach, the actual way we approach the change that causes us to essentially fall short. And so what we've been doing this month is teaching on five facts that will change the way we change. That if we actually approach the process of change differently, we can be in a better position to achieve these objectives, achieve these goals. And so we started this the first uh, Sunday of February, February 5th, teaching on the fact about change, that change is not a project, it's a process. Fact number one. The following week, we talked, fact number two, that change isn't about, first of all, about achieving. It's, first of all, about receiving. And then last week, we talked about change, a fact about change, that change isn't so much about trying, but that success in change is about training. And for those of you uh, here for the first time, welcome, as Pete said, and uh, you can actually catch up with these five facts, or if you've been away on uh, family vacation, Stewie, you can catch up with these on our podcast uh, from our website and, and uh, from iTunes. But all of these facts, and we're going to teach you four, fact number four today, and then next week, fact number five, all of these facts uh, are taken from something that Paul, who Peter referenced earlier, one of the, the big wigs of the early church, something that he wrote to a, to, a, to, a, to a church in a place called Colossae. And he wrote this very, very simple instruction. And I've challenged you guys, invited you to join me to memorize this uh, particular truth, particular instruction from Paul. And so uh, those of you that have been tracking over the last few weeks, um, let me put you to the test. For those of you that are here for the first time today, we're going to put this on the screens and read it. But those of you, how about you join me? Blinkers on. And, uh, but how about just say these words with me. This is something that Paul said to the early church in Colossae. He said, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him, rooted and built up in Him. So far, we've talked about this idea that the starting point for change is not achieving, it's receiving. It's us having an encounter with a real living Savior named Jesus who came to this earth 2,000 years ago to take our place, to, to, to take away our sins, to see that we would be forgiven and we'd be able to be restored into a relationship with God. That empowers us to be in relationship with God and out of that relationship starts the process of change. So, so it's not... Achieving, it's receiving. But the receiving is the starting point. Then Paul says to continue to live your lives in him. Change is not a project. It's a process. It's an every day, every week, every month, every year, continuing to follow Jesus, continuing to walk in his footsteps, continuing to incline our ear to his words and obey him. Then last week, we talked about this idea that, that it's not just to be in a holding pattern. But actually, God wants us to make progress, that we're actually to be rooted in him. And that the deeper something is rooted, the more it can be built up. 
And that, that we need to therefore concentrate on being rooted and what that looks like. And I put a book out uh, recommending uh, a book to, to you guys last week by Richard Foster um, called The Celebration of Discipline. It's got 12 aspects of training. And uh, I've invited you, I'm doing this myself, to take one of those aspects of training each month throughout this year and just do it as a personal training exercise. The first chapter, the first training exercise is meditation. And I got to tell you, I'm an activist. I have a very activistic personality. This month of January, I'm trying to get better at meditation. And he qualifies what that is and what it isn't, too, by the way. Um, Just great stuff. Encourage you to to do that. Um, But this this verse, this instruction that Paul gave, it, it was in... A context that we need to understand. It was actually, in fact, in a response to Paul having heard that somebody had come through to this church in Colossae, somebody or bodies, they, they weren't sort of called out as to who they were, but they'd come in and they'd given this kind of wrong teaching. And this wrong teaching was, was taking this, these people from this early church in Colossae, taking them off a course. They were no longer continuing to live their lives in Jesus and they were starting to kind of to veer off. And that can happen to the best of us. And that's why this instruction is just as applicable to you and I today as it was 2,000 years ago when Paul wrote it to that specific church in Colossae. But this is the, the context of, of why Paul was writing this. In verse 8, we read Paul's instruction to them, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. He was reminding them that all truth starts with Jesus, that if people are bringing you uh, truths based on human tradition, that is going to take you away from Jesus teaching us to live our lives in him, then we need to actually course correct and get back to living our lives in him. And I want to put it to you today that one of the most prevalent uh, human uh, traditions, let's go back to Zodwa, one of the most prevalent human traditions, and Paul writes about this idea of human tradition, one of the most prevalent human traditions in our culture today, I want to put to you, is the culture of competition. Okay? Now let me unpack that. It's all I want to do today. Unpack that and hopefully help us recognize some stuff. And I hope and pray that some of you are going to be set free this morning. I really do. In 2013, one of the biggest media events, and I, uh, being an avid uh, triathlete and cycling fan, I, I reoriented my schedule on this particular day, uh, turned off every distraction, you know, put the do not disturb sign uh, everywhere um, to watch Oprah Winfrey interview Lance Armstrong, okay? Oprah Winfrey interviewed Lance Armstrong in the idea that on this particular day, in this particular interview setting, uh, Lance was going to probably confess to having used uh, performance-enhancing drugs, PEDS, okay? Now, this proves a couple of things. This proves, first of all, that you can outrun the government, You can outrun the law, but there is absolutely no escaping Oprah. (laughs) Yep, she got him. Anyway, 
But I was fascinated. I mean, I literally was glued to, to the television watching this. And, and, I, and I watched it intently. You know, I watched, I mean, Oprah's one of the most successful people on the planet. And we can actually learn principles from people. And I'll talk about that a little bit later on. So I was fascinated in how she approached this. And uh, she, like many great interviewers, don't let the subject off the hook if they're trying to kind of, you know, take the long way around. And she asked Lance, in one time, a part of this interview, she asked him a very pointed question. One of these kind of, you know, backs the interviewee into the corner where they only have the option essentially of saying yes or no. And uh, she said to him, is it possible, this is, this, I'm quoting this to you, is it possible in your opinion, is it possible to have won seven tours de France without the use of performance-enhancing drugs? Is it possible? And Lance said, no, in my opinion, it's not possible. Now, I'm not here to rail on Lance Armstrong. We don't preach against people. We don't preach about people. We preach about Jesus. And that's who we're going to talk about today. But this wasn't a new thing in, in, in cycling. Uh, a, f- a former multiple Tours de France winner was once asked uh, you know, how he became so successful. And uh, he said to the interviewer, uh, one does not win five Tours de France on espresso alone was his uh, statement. And there's this culture that Lance was right in the middle of, and he said that it was a level playing field, that everyone was doing it, that it was just as normal to inject your body with performance-enhancing substances as it was to put air in your tires and water in your water bottle. It was just what you did in order to win, in order to get ahead of your rivals, this culture of competition. And, and actually, you know, people have different opinions about Lance and about, you know, Ben Johnson before him and so on and so forth. And they, they're not the first people to get caught out. They won't be the last. Uh, but we can kind of understand it. We can kind of, you know, get this high level of sporting competition where people you know, make a living from, from winning or losing. Can be the difference between feeding your family or whatever it happens. We can kind of get our heads around that, kind of understand it. But what we need to understand and what I want to talk about today in the time we have remaining is there's actually a dark side to the culture of competition outside of the sporting arena. And you know it because you experience it regularly. See, you didn't, some of you didn't realize you needed a new iPhone when you were rocking around with the iPhone 4S until your colleague came to you one Monday morning and flashed you the iPhone 5. And all of a sudden, for the next month, every time you, your phone rang and you had to look down at your poverty-stricken iPhone 4S, it was just depressing. You get this as a culture. It worked, oh, gee, it worked just fine. No, 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 it doesn't because there's a five. Yep, sure, good, got it. You, know, you didn't realize you needed a bigger TV until your neighbors invited you over to watch a movie on a Sunday afternoon on their 60-inch. 3D smart TV, which serves coffee at the same time and uh, pauses for an intermission knowing when you need to go to the toilet. You didn't know you needed a new TV. So you went back after and you flicked on your t- and you just like your 42 inches just didn't cut it anymore. See, it, it's this culture of competition. What about photos? Photos is a whole nother thing. There was a time, some of you, I'll explain it to you, under 30s, l- listen carefully. 
Let me, let me, let me walk you back down a ah, distant memory lane. There was a time, this is true, under 30s, this is true. Okay, Garrett, Jordan, Angie, this is true. There was a time, there was a time when people took photographs in order to preserve memories of particular occasions. That, that was the actual, the only reason that people used to take photographs. And they would bring those photographs out when unsuspecting family members would pop over and they would force you to sit and view them all. That, that, that was, that, that, no, yeah, no, seriously, true. That was why people used to take photographs. Now, in the age of social media, we now take photographs to prove to our social networked friends that our kids are better than their kids, that our holidays are more fun than your holidays, and that the meal that I'm about to enjoy is much better than the one that you're sitting in front of sucked in. Is a whole nother thing. Some of you, I suspect, have maybe been sitting around and your kids have been frolicking and having a great time and you've said to them, kids, stop, hold that pose while you shuffle around to get your smartphone out to take a photo. I just, I don't know if you've ever done that. If you have, you're a very, 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 very cruel and sick individual. That's all I have to say. <laughs> now, really, you're not because, because this is kind of normal now. And if you, well, that's not me. I don't do that. I don't do Really, ever posted a photo to social media and then check back to see how many likes you've generated? Culture of competition. And I'm not so sure some of this is all that bad, although I do think living simply so others can simply live is a great thing. To do, But let me paraphrase Oprah Winfrey's question to Lance Armstrong. And let me put this question to you this morning. Is it possible, in your opinion, is it possible in our culture, which places a higher value on how we present ourselves than it does often on the substance of who we are, is it possible... For you and I to have our identities so rooted in who Jesus calls us to be that we're more concerned about that than we are concerned about and having to borrow credibility from what other people think we ought to be. Is that possible? So I think we're swimming upstream to achieve that but that's the question. And Paul wrote this, this, this uh, correction, but, but it was as much of a, a warning as it was a correction. There's a, an incredibly strong word there, and it picks up from what Pete was talking about earlier. Incredibly strong word there, and it's actually not metaphorical. It's actually quite literal. Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive. He, he, he didn't just say, see to it that no one knocks you slightly off course. See, see to it that no one causes you to have an occasional you know, dark day. He actually warned them, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition. My question is, how does a culture of competition take us captive? And I answer it very, very simply with three words. Comparison kills contentment. 
This is one of life's great axioms. Comparison kills contentment. The, great, the, the very same thing that can cause us to be great athletically and want to win and not buy into this whole thing, it's not whether you win or lose, it's how you play the game, well then why do we keep score? It's actually this idea that, that, that we want to be the best we can be, but, but if we base who we're meant to be in comparison to other people, it will take our soul captive and kill our contentment. And in, particularly in our progressive Western culture, we think that we'll become more content as we move up in weight divisions. And my observation is that that's not a straightforward guarantee. And the reason it's not a straightforward guarantee is not an accomplishment problem. I love people accomplishing more. God, here at Elevate, that's one of the reasons we've called ourselves Elevate, <laughs> is that we want to see people lifted up. We want to see the tide rise in people's souls and people's lives. Absolutely. I hate the tall puppy syndrome. Let other people cut them down. We're going to speak life because words create worlds. That's, that's what we do around here. We speak life. It's not an accomplishment problem that as we move up in weight divisions that we're not necessarily more content. It's a fuel issue. The question is, what's fueling us to want to accomplish? And too many people, the fuel is to please and impress other people. For those of you, I want to just, I'm just putting hopefully what's helpful today, some instructions, some stuff that's going to set you free. For some of you who are fueled to accomplish, to impress other people, let me, let me just put three little quick questions that I ask myself whenever I kind of find myself at that unhealthy crossword, uh, crossroad fueled by the need to impress other people. I ask myself three very simple questions. What am I trying to prove? To whom? And for what? And these three questions, if you can get the answer right, it will f- they will free you. They will cause you to discover or rediscover contentment. What am I trying to prove? Well, I'm going to answer what I think is a worthy answer to that question in the time we've got remaining. To whom? I'm going to put the, I think, the best answer in the end of that question to you this morning and for what? And I'm going to round out the time we have together to answer that question as well. Because fact number four, that we need to understand about change, to change the way we change. Fact number four is simply this. It's not a competition. It's a calling. That as we saw in the little uh, bumper video at the front end, the the megaphone, (laughs) he found his calling, he found his better fit, not in the race, but in the commentary box. And it's it's instructive. And I want to share a story with you from something that Jesus said. I'm just going to my little version app that I told you guys about last week. And uh, get in a bit of practice. Take out your smart uh, devices if you've got them handy. Just uh, open up the app. Some of you, it's actually great. I got kind of, uh, I got kind of uh, lit up Sunday afternoon last week by people saying, oh, I'm just playing with that Bible app. It's fantastic. Or a couple of, cu- couple of people had some technological challenges and they reached out to Mark's, Mark's Gen X help desk and he helped them to, uh, to get this, uh, this app running. And 
be set free. But anyway, all right. So, but I'm going to put it on the screens just uh, so we can all follow along. And this is something that Jesus said. He used a metaphor, telling this metaphorical story. It'll be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one, he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. And then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once to put his money at work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more, but the man who had received only one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold, and see, I've gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll now put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with the two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold, and see, I've gained two more. His master replied, hey, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. And then the man with, who'd received one bag of gold came and said, and by the way, this is not how to go to your boss for a promotion or a raise. Master, he said, I've heard you're a hard man, harvesting where you've not sown and gathering where you've not scattered seed. And so I was afraid and I went out and hid your gold in the ground and see, here it is. What belongs to you? And his master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I've not sown and gather where I've not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers. So at least when I returned, it would have received back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who now has 10 bags. For whoever has been given more, they'll have an abundance. Whoever does not have even what they have will be taken from them. There's a couple of really, really, really vital, uh, vital freedom-inducing takeaways from this very short, very simple story from Jesus. If you rewind to the front end of that story, Jesus talked about three people. He said, one, he gave five bags of gold. One, he gave two bags of gold. And one, he gave one bag of gold. Let's just look through the lens of the middle guy. Let's look through the lens of the, of the middle guy, the one who'd been given only two bags of gold. Now, you would only think that you only got two bags of gold and maybe got ripped off, maybe got shortchanged if you compared yourself with the guy who got the five bags of gold, right? Yeah. If you compared yourself with the guy that got the one bag of gold, you had twice as much as him, you'd be doubly content. But we don't do that so often. So often we compare ourselves with people who've got the five bags of gold. But here's what Jesus said. He made a very clear distinction. He said that he gave to each of them a different amount according to their ability. If for whatever reason, and I don't always know why, but the reality is we all have a different capacity. And God, in his infinite wisdom and justice, he didn't give the guy who had a two-bag capacity, he didn't give him five bags of gold because he knew it would overwhelm him. He knew it would crush him. He knew it would destroy him. And he knew it would be wasteful of kingdom resources. It is freeing when we can look around our sphere and understand that there are people 
who have been given more than us, whatever the more is, and people that have been given less than us, and actually that's how God intended the process to begin. He gives to us according to our ability. Thank God. He doesn't want to throw us under the bus and give us more than our capacity can handle. Incredibly important truth. The other takeaway from that is that when we meet him face to face and as we journey through this life until that day, he doesn't judge us by the same scorecard as he judges other people. Because he only judges us based on what we do with what we've been given. You see, we, the guy that had only been given one bag of gold, he didn't get judged because he only had the capacity for one bag of gold. He got judged differently to the other two because he didn't do the best he could with the one bag of gold. God actually had the same principles in play, but he used a different scorecard. Simply, did you do the best with what you had? Because he actually judged the other two with the same principle, even though they had, one had five and one had two. He said the same thing to them. You've both done the best with what I entrusted to you. And that's all he asks of us. And that should be incredibly freeing for some of you this morning. Some of you have been judging yourselves and beating yourselves up because you don't have as much as someone else. And some of you have been beating yourselves up because it seems to you that some other people are doing better than you and getting further than you and changing more than you and getting a result quicker than you. And God has one simple question. Well, I guess you could say two questions. Do you know what I've entrusted to you? And are you doing your best with that? That's the important thing because it's not a competition. It's a calling. Now, I will say this. There is a time, there is a place, there is a role for looking to people who are ahead of us because we can actually learn from them. They can be mentors. They can be role models. We can look at the principles of their lives particularly people who, who also are kind of in the same bandwidth of our sweet spot, of our calling, looking at them and saying, okay, you know, like if you're a teacher, looking at someone who's a, a much better teacher than you and not beating yourselves up and comparing yourselves to them, but certainly drawing inspiration from them, certainly learning from them, certainly sitting at their feet. And that's why I'm a big, big, big uh, uh, advocate and, and exponent of reading and listening to podcasts and, and getting, going out of my way to get FaceTime with other people who are ahead of me in my calling, um, but not beating myself up if I'm not yet where they are. And actually, sometimes God's never called me to ultimately be where they are because I might be the two-pot bag of gold person and they're the five-bag of gold person. But God's asked me to do the best with what I've been entrusted to, just like he asks them to do the best with what he's entrusted to them. And if we know this, if we embrace this, if we get this truth down deep on the inside of our soul, that it's not a competition, it's a calling, this will have two very, very powerful outcomes. I'm going to finish with this. Two very, very, very powerful outcomes. Number one, 
you'll get your contentment back. Your soul will be released from captivity. And you'll be able to live free if you know that all God asks you to do is the best you have with what he's entrusted to you. And, but here's this other, there's a second outcome, and this is one that actually gets talked about less. Some people believe that life is a zero-sum game. A zero-sum game is an expression which simply explains the idea that there's always a winner and a loser. That in life, with every relationship, every transaction, every setting, there's always a winner and a loser. And so if I want to be the winner, the way I become the winner is helping make sure someone else becomes the loser. Jesus' story said there was actually two winners. And the one, one being the winner actually didn't cancel out the second guy being the winner. They actually both won simply by doing the best they have with what was entrusted to them. If we understand this, then instead of going around putting people down, instead of going around scheming behind people's back, instead of going around gossiping, we will actually go around speaking life, speaking encouragement, looking for opportunities to build other people up. Because actually, as other people are built up, life's not a zero-sum game. And as they get built up, we get dragged back down. No, we can actually create an environment around us where words create worlds where we can grow and build an environment around us where the tide will rise and all of the ships in the harbor will go up. Yours, mine, your spouses, your kids, your neighbors, your bosses, your colleagues, even people you don't really get on well with choose to speak life because their tide, their rising tide doesn't actually prevent yours rising and often it will help cause yours to rise as well. Now, I'll give a little uh, uh, preview. <laughs> and I'm going to guess some of you are asking this question. And I, as a church leader, this is almost like the most common question I get. Just go back to Zodman. Uh, well, that's great, Mark. But I don't know the answer to this question. What's my calling? I'm happy to live that life's not a competition, but I don't know what's my calling. Well, preview is that in February, we're going to spend three weeks talking about God's will and God's will for your life. It's a conversation we're called God's will is whatever. And this is going to really build on the new rules of resolution. And if you've already started to see some freedom in your soul from what we've been teaching, this is going to unleash a lot more freedom. So be here for that. Is, uh, is my recommendation to you. Who am I trying to... Three questions I said before. What am I trying to prove? I'm trying to prove that there is a God who has entrusted me with a calling. And I'm going to prove... To him, that I'm worthy of that calling, that I'm trustworthy. That's the to whom. I live a life that pleases an audience of one. And for what? It's not just that I can fulfill my calling, but my calling and your calling is actually to see God's kingdom expand, God's kingdom grow. And we want to be front of the line when he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Hey, uh, last thing, just uh, this morning, and uh, you already know this is the last Sunday. You're going to have to, you know, lose three liters of fluid listening to me preach. So uh, 
well done. My stride, a smock. I brought a size up because I knew I'd be sweating here. I wanted to get a little bit of airflow. Um, some of you, uh, we said right at the beginning with this thing that Paul wrote to this church, just as you've received Christ Jesus as Lord, some of you, maybe you haven't actually taken that step to receive Christ Jesus as Lord. We're going to give you that opportunity this morning, right here, right now. Many of you have made this decision to start this journey following Jesus, to actually say, Jesus, I'm actually going to acknowledge you as my Lord. But some of you, maybe you haven't done that. You haven't actually made that decision. We're going to give you that opportunity this morning. All we're going to do in a moment, for those of you that have never made that decision, never received Jesus as your Lord, said, I put my trust in you, give my life to you. All I want you to do in a moment is just put your hand up. You're saying, God, that's me. I want to make that decision today. When I see your hand, you can put it down. And then we're going to pray. And we don't want to miss anybody. We do this every single week because we don't want anybody to, to leave here without having the opportunity to make Jesus their Lord. So right now, for those of you that have never made that decision, just slip your hand up real quickly, just so I can see it, and then you can put it down, and then we're going to pray. Fantastic. Who else? Just put your hand up right where you're seated. You say, that's me. I actually need to make that first step of my transformation journey, to make Jesus my Lord, to come into a relationship with him. Just put your hand up, and uh, when I see your hand, you can put it down, then we're going to pray. Real quickly. Fantastic. All right, let's pray. So one person lift their hand. Absolutely brilliant. Let's all pray this prayer together. Just a sense that we're all on the same journey and we're all supporting one another, but especially that person that lifted their hand. Say these words after me. Dear Jesus, today I decide to make you my Lord, to put my trust in you, to follow you, to begin the process of transformation. Thank you. For forgiving me of my sins, for giving me a brand new start. And I commit from this day to follow you for the rest of my life. In your name I pray. Amen. And we celebrate, eh? Eh? I sound like a Kiwi then. We celebrate, eh, bro? So uh, a couple of things really, really quickly. First of all, uh, next week, Elevate Church, first birthday. Absolutely brilliant. And uh, so as Pete said, all in long table lunch in hall number two. That has got two kick-ass 10 kilowatt air conditioners in there. But we won't you know, be craving that as much because we're going to have two new eight and a half kilowatt. Nevertheless, it's going to be wanting to be in there. It's fully catered, so we need you to register today. We want to have everyone there. That starts at 12 noon. So we start our live experience at 9.59. Drink some coffee. See, kids are pumping their tires. I mean, the elevator kids pumping their tires. Kids, be at the yellow table lunch. Go and get your parents. Tell them to register here today. Um, go to the front desk, register. And we've already got 50 plus people registered for that. But uh, we'd love to see that. Uh, just We want everyone there. Have a celebration. First birthday. You only get to celebrate that once. And... Uh, Oh, well, actually, because it's Australia Day, not only do we have some delicious coffee, which is... Neil, have you dyed your hair pink again? Wow. You probably dyed a red, white, and blue today, you clown. Uh, Brazilian Dolce, beautiful. And we have our resident Tong master, Liam Gibb. He's been out there. You think it's been hot for you? He's been out there in the sun, wielding the tongs in front of the Barbie. 
Not cooking shrimp. Snaggers. Not buravors. Someone tried to arm wrestle me with some sort of racial jokes that Australians can't barbecue buravors yesterday. We don't need to, mate. We got snaggers. Anyway, there's snossages for all. So have a great week, folks. See you next week when we turn one.